My name is Heath Cummings. I'm a deacon here at Hammock Street, and I've served in the outreach ministry for a little over a year. Um, I asked Russ, Pastor Russell if I could be called Minister of Outreach. He said it was okay, so I'm thinking about getting a t-shirt made. Um, all jokes aside, I, I'm so happy to be here. God has been so good and so faithful to me, despite years of, of wickedness in my past. His loving kindness truly is everlasting. And part of that is that he's delivered me here with a sermon that I pray will glorify him. I'm going to start with a bit of a confession. We'll see if any of you can relate. My wife and I have a bit of a soft spot for self-help gurus. Since the start of the pandemic, we've spent an immense amount of time, energy, resources on workout equipment, fitness classes, apps, and more. We've both read at least a dozen books on eating healthier, meditation, etc. We even started a Facebook page to share healthy recipes at one point. Well, I don't know if anyone here can relate. I know America can. The NPD group estimates that 18.6 million volumes of self-help books were sold in the year 2019 alone. And if you look at the Spotify podcast charts, you find things like Unlocking Us, Stuff You Should Know, and a variety of sleep and meditation aids. Everybody's looking for help. Even shows like Joe Rogan's and Jordan Peterson's aren't explicitly self-help, but they hit the same notes. And those notes are, at its most basic, you're doing it wrong, here's how to do it better. And that's okay as long as the person you're listening to knows what they're talking about. I also think there's a different message, maybe a more comforting message, that is something like, you're good enough if you'll just do it the right way. And that message in particular can feel kind of strange, or maybe even oppositional, to what you might hear in church. That's because we know we aren't good enough. We know we can't be good enough, not without Jesus. We know that in Genesis 3, sin separates us from God, and that we have no chance at a right relationship with him without the salvation of Jesus Christ. No amount of affirmations, meditations, or burpees can change that. But today I want to remind you of something else. The Bible doesn't start in Genesis 3. The Bible doesn't start with us at all. The Bible starts with God. It's right there in the first four words. In the beginning, God. The first two chapters of the Bible are all about how God made this world and us. And I'd encourage you to read the first chapter regularly. It's a great reminder of who he is and what he did. This morning, I want to focus on two verses from chapter 1 that set the stage for today's message. We'll start with them together and then try to break them down a little bit later. The first is Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, over the cattle and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then five verses later, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. For me, the power in those two verses, the creator of everything, the one who was and is and always will be, made us in his image, according to his likeness. And then later that day, he looked upon his creation, upon us, and behold, it was very good. I don't want to belabor the, I do want to belabor the point here. We're, we're talking about the God of the universe. He made the earth in verse 2, created light in verse 3, made heaven in verse 8, made the sun and the stars and the moon and every li living creature that has ever been. 
That same God, the only true God, created man, us, in his image and looked upon man, us, and saw that it was very good. This leads me to the title of today's sermon, God Made You Good. Before sin ever touched you, he made you good. And it's our job as his creation to be more and more what he made us to be. And we can't do that fully in this life. We can't do it at all without the sacrifice of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. But we have both. And we have access to a life that glorifies him and benefits those around us simply by being who he made us to be. Please pray with me and then we'll dig in. Father God, thank you for this body, for your son, for your Holy Spirit, for your word, and for your everlasting love. Pray that you'd bless these words, that you'd bless us to become more who you made us to be, and to do your will and glorify you. Amen. As we begin, I want to be really clear, because there could be a pitfall. I'm not discounting sin. Sin has wrecked me in the past. Sin is my biggest adversary today. And sin will haunt me in the future. I I do not believe there's any complete escape from sin in this life. And it's important to recognize what a monstrosity sin is. Because if you gloss over sin, you're glossing over what Jesus did for us on the cross. If sin could be overcome by our willpower, there was never any reason for Jesus to die on the cross. Paul makes it quite clear in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I also want to be clear that sin's not a God problem. There's nothing in Genesis 1 or Genesis 2 about God creating sin. Sin is our problem entirely. A problem that God dealt with for us, not because he was required to, but because he so loved the world, as Jesus tells us in the book of John. This is the same world we live in today. The one full of sin, the one that denies him, the one that frustrates us on a daily basis. God so loved that world, this world, your world, you, that he gave his only begotten son. That may have seemed a little disconnected from the notion that he made us good, but it's not. In fact, I'd say it's a reinforcement of God's holy plan. His plan from the time he made us was for us to be good to his creation, and in his eyes. Sin prevented that. Sin made us his enemy. But sin, as evil as it is, cannot fully or permanently tarnish what God set out to make good. There was something 2,000 years ago that God saw as redeemable. That something was us, the very creatures he made in his image. And I want to stop there again because I don't want to gloss over that. God made us in his image. We should dive a little deeper into what that means, and I want to go back to those first two verses. It'll be three now, because I'm going to add verse 27. Then, then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. And then verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
I added verse 27 because it really drives home the point. It doesn't leave any room for interpretation. God made us in his image. How could we be anything other than good at the time of creation? One of my favorite books was recommended to to me by a dear friend, The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. In it, Tozer deeply examines who and what the Bible says God is. And while it's worthwhile to recall some of those attributes, as we consider the fact that he made us good, Tozer rightly ascribes these attributes, which seem to be clearly out of our reach. He's omnipotent or all-powerful. He's self-existent or uncreated. He's self-sufficient. He needs nothing. He is both infinite and eternal. He possesses all wisdom and knowledge. There's nothing God doesn't know. And he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Now, I'm pretty sure when the author of Genesis tells us that God made us in his image, these are the things he left out. I did not receive any omnipotence or omnipresence. And we certainly do not possess all wisdom and knowledge. Thank goodness. Can you imagine social media? The point of bringing up those attributes is to recognize who made you good. The one uncreated who possesses all power and all knowledge. That's who. That's the one who said, let us make man in our image. That's the one who looked at man and said, it is very good. That's what we read at the end of chapter 1. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Now, I appreciate the very in there. It's not just a translation preference. It's there in the NASB, NIV, ESV. It's even in the King James Version. And I'm not going to try to pronounce that word because I'm not Pastor Russell. But I can tell you the word is used 219 times in the Old Testament. It's translated as exceedingly, very, greatly, especially, highly, abundantly. I hope you get the point, but in case you don't, try it out. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was exceedingly good. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was especially good. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was abundantly good. Do you see it? I think we should take the next logical step, because I believe God made me. I believe God made you. I believe you're a part of all that he made. I do not believe it's a stretch at all to say that he looked upon you, and behold, you were very good in his eyes. You were exceedingly good. You were especially good. You were abundantly good. God didn't look at his creation at you and say, meh, it's okay. God doesn't do meh. David proclaims it in Psalm 139, verse 14. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. Here we have David, a man refers to as a man after my own heart, proclaiming the very fact that the author of Genesis told us. He was fearfully and wonderfully made. Can you say that? You can. You should. You were fearfully and wonderfully made by the same God who created David. I think it was easier for David to say that because back when he lived, being God-made really meant something because they contrasted it with man-made. We hear man-made and we get really excited, handcrafted. Oh, this is special. But we're comparing it to mass-produced or machine-made. That didn't exist back then. The difference then was, did did God make it, or did we make it? And the Old Testament's full of warnings about things man-made. You can contrast what he said in Psalm 139 with what we see in Psalm 115, 
The idols are, their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths but cannot speak. They have eyes that cannot see. They have ears but they cannot hear. They have noses but they cannot smell. They have hands but they cannot feel. They have feet but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. The point being, our creation simply cannot stand up to his creation. That's easier to say for some reason when we're talking about non-human things, it seems like. I can get out in nature and be in awe at a sunset or a tree or a mountain, maybe even a bird or a squirrel. It's more difficult to see how wonderful he made me or us, which is kind of weird because we're the only ones made in his image. But even Paul seems to get that. In his, in his first letter to Timothy, chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. Now, Paul's talking about food here, about plants and animals that we put into our body. He's cautioning against teaching that suggests we should still abstain from some foods. But if every plant and animal God creates is good, how much more so every image bearer? Jesus repeatedly hits this note in the book of Matthew. First in Matthew 6 on the Sermon on the Mount. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. And in Matthew chapter 10, he says it again. He was sending out the disciples. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Just, just one more time, Matthew chapter 12, verse 12, how much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. I hope you can see that the idea that God made you good is not one that's limited to the Old Testament, not by a long shot. While Jesus is clear about our sin and our need for salvation, he also reinforces regularly that we are precious and valuable to God. And as we discussed earlier, God is perfect. He could not see as precious and valuable something or someone that's not good. Now, assuming I've convinced you that God made you good, what does that mean for our lives today? Because we know we're still afflicted by sin. And as Paul says in Romans 7, I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I do the very thing that I hate. And that's not going to completely change on this side. So what is the point of this insistence that God made us good in the first place? Does it even matter in light of sin? For one thing, it's truth from God. And I believe it's infinitely and eternally important to know as much truth from God as possible for at least three reasons. One, he's our creator and the designer of the way we're supposed to be. Two, he loves us and has the best plans for us. And three, knowing his truth makes it easier to sort out Satan's lies. But even beyond that, going back to the self-help gurus for a moment, there's a reason they hit those same notes I talked about at the beginning. There's a reason they tell you you're good enough and can be truly happy if you'll just do the things they do. 
eat the things they do, exercise the way they do, and so on and so on. The message is appealing to our brains. It's empowering. It can both draw us in and, and motivate us to do hard things. Here's the thing. We have a roadmap to life right here. Pastor Russell often says, following Jesus will make your life better and you better at life. All those diets and workout plans, some of them really work and can help you accomplish major things. They can absolutely change your life. This can change your eternity. And it asks you to do some really hard things. It's hard to love your neighbor, even harder to love your enemy. Sometimes it's hard to love the people you want to love. It's hard to resist temptation, especially the type that feels good. And we live in a world that's surrounded us with things that feel good and are contrary to God's will. And it's hard to be bold in your faith when the world pushes you to do otherwise. I believe those hard things become almost impossible if your story starts in Genesis 3. If you only see yourself as the sinner that isn't good enough, what hope do you have of accomplishing what he made you to do? But you can do those things precisely because that's what God made you to do. There is power in that knowledge. There is power in the truth that the things Jesus calls us to do are the very things we were created to do. Of course, there's another reason this is important. It's so that you can actually grow in the knowledge of both who you are and who God is. Because, as we talked about it earlier, he made us in his image. Earlier, I listed some attributes that Tozer used to describe God. And frankly, most of them seemed out of reach. All of them seemed out of reach. They're very helpful in helping us better know him and his perfection. They do not help us in understanding who he made us to be very well, because we can't attain any of them. But that wasn't the complete list. The rest of the list tells us about who God is and who he made us to be. The wisdom of God, he made us to be wise. The faithfulness of God, he, he made us to be faithful. The justice of God, he made us to be just. The mercy of God, he made us to be merciful. The grace of God, he made us to be full of grace, poured out for others. The love of God, Jesus made it pretty clear he made us to love. And the goodness of God, finally, he most certainly made us to be good. God calls us to each of these attributes throughout the Bible, in both the New and Old Testament. These are the attributes I believe God shared with us. These are the attributes that when we show them, the world gets to see a little bit more of him. Now, I want to be sure I don't reference Tozer's book so much you think I'm putting on the same level with the Bible. There's 117 pages in the knowledge of the holy. There's 115 biblical sources. Uh, these attributes of God came straight out of the Bible. Every attribute of God listed is biblical and true. And it's also a biblical and true that God made us, at least partially, to pursue these attributes so that we can better reflect his image to the world. Now, if, if you're convinced that God made us good, and it's important to know that, there's just one question left. What do we do about it? I would suggest, first and foremost, we've got to get to know him better. If we're made in his image, figuring out who we are starts with figuring out who he is. After all, he's both the one who made us and the one whose image we were made. We can do that by studying the Bible daily. We can do that by reading past Christian authors like Tozer and C.S. Lewis or by reading current authors like Andy Stanley and N.T. Wright. 
Christian study is an excellent way to discover new things about God and what he made you to be. It's also a great way to follow Paul's command in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Of course, prayer is also essential. Talking to God and listening is one of the best ways to better know him. My grandmother told me a few years ago that her understanding was prayer is talking to God, meditation is listening to God. Teresa of Avila, 16th century Spanish nun, wrote several books and and often extolled the virtue of both verbal prayer and silent prayer. And Pastor Jasper was up here just a month ago, his, his first sermon with us. He did an excellent job of talking about both the importance and effectiveness of saying scripture and prayer out loud. There is power to speak in speaking out loud to God. There's also power in sitting in silence and waiting for him to speak to you. In fact, one of the few self-help things that's stuck with me over the past three years is meditation. I call it sitting with him. David writes in one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 27, Verse 4, one thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Now, we don't have temple buildings anymore, and to be clear, the church is not a temple either. Now, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where the temple is now. Verse 16, do you not know that you are a temple of God? and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If you've accepted Jesus as your Savior and accepted the Holy Spirit into your heart, your body is a temple, a window into heaven, because God lives there through his Spirit. This is the Spirit Jesus tells us will reveal all truth to us, will convict us of our sins, and will communicate our prayers to the Father. God has given us his word and his spirit. And to me, the only logical response to the realization he made us good is to search both. Trying to know more and more about him. In that seeking, he will reveal himself more to us. And in getting to know him better, we will better come to know who he made us to be. What he made us to do. Do. I think it's a good word to finish on, isn't it? He made you good. He made you to do good. He created you in his image and likeness to do his will. You do not have to become someone else to please God. You only have to become more who he made you to be in the first place. Paul says almost that exact same thing in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So the final response I'd suggest, after study, after prayer and contemplation, is to go do his will. You will not do it perfectly. At first, you may not even do it regularly. But as we grow in the knowledge of who he is and who he made us to be, as we come to fully recognize the creator of the moon and the stars and everything beneath also made us in his image, also loves us so much that he sent his only son 
his perfect son to die on the cross for our sins. And yes, we should do. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for blessing us. Thank you for creating us in your image. Lord, I pray that you would just continue to bless us this week and moving forward, do your will to know you better. In Jesus' name, amen.